It's SMU Hate Week for one of the last times. TCU takes on the ponies from Dallas in the battle for the Iron Skillet this Saturday at 11 a.m. Melissa is going to be here to preview that game with Billy Embody from the State of Dallas podcast. Plus, Jeremiah Desnati testifies before Congress this week, and I answer your questions. All that right now on this episode of Frogs Insider. Welcome into Frogs Insider. Jamie Plunkett here. Melissa will be along shortly. Thank you, as always, for being here and for giving us a listen. We are the TCU Podcast and the Republic of Football Network with Dave Campbell's Texas Football. We're very glad that you are here with us for this episode. We are previewing TCU's game against SMU this week. Week 11 a.m. at Amon G. Carter Stadium on Fox Sports 1 is where you can check that game out if you're not going to be there. One of the last times the Frogs and the Mustangs have uh, a competition between the two schools scheduled. We'll get into that a little bit. Plus, uh, Jeremiah Donati testified before the House Committee on Small Business this week in regard to NIL and its impact on college athletics. He was joined by several other people. We'll hear uh, his opening statement on the show today. And yeah, mailbag time. You guys know the drill for midweek stuff. We're going to get into the midweek or we're going to get into our mailbag, answer a lot of questions from the board this week over at hornfrogblitz.com. If you're not a member over at hornfrogblitz.com, make sure that you get over there and join. Jeremy Clark and I are going to keep you up to date on everything you need to know about TCU Athletics. Plus, hit that subscribe button. Make sure you leave us a rating and review wherever you get this podcast. We have been growing like crazy. I know I say it every week, but every week the numbers keep going up, right? So we're doing something right over here. So if you haven't subscribed, if you haven't hit a rating or review yet, you might as well just get on board, baby, because we're not going anywhere. I'm feeling like LeBron right now. Not one, not two, not three. Keep those ratings coming. Uh, keep subscribing. If you haven't hit the subscribe button over at the YouTube channel, please make sure you do that as well. It all helps us out, right? Like, we love talking about TCU. We love talking about TCU with you. And we can continue to do that with more and more TCU folks. The more and more you guys help us get the word out there. And all that stuff helps get the word out. Um, all right. <clears throat> Shout out to Hell's Half Acre and Homefield Apparel, our two wonderful, beautiful, handsome sponsors for the show. You're going to hear more from them a little bit later on in the episode. Uh, yeah, let's do this. This week, we're going to jump right into the TCU-SMU preview. Um, we're going to jump right in. Melissa sat down with Billy Embody earlier this week. He's covered SMU for a long time over on the other side of the Metroplex for 24-7, for On3. He's, he's bounced around quite a bit. Um, he's got a podcast in the Republic of Football Network, which is why he's the guy we're talking to this week. It's called The State of Dallas. You can find it in the same podcast feed that you can find this podcast. If you find if you search for Republic of Football Network on Spotify, on podcast, on Apple Podcasts, or Google Play, whatever wherever you need to get your podcast from, you can find his podcast in the same feed as ours. Um, so go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Listen to their episode; they did one uh, where he's asking her about TCU, and Melissa does a great job as always of previewing TCU for TCU's opponent this weekend. Um, but let's go ahead and jump in. This is Melissa's conversation from earlier this week with Billy and Buddy previewing the Iron Skillet game coming up on Saturday. 
Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Frogs Insider midweek preview podcast. Uh, This week, we are getting ready to preview the battle for the iron skillet. One of the last couple that we might see for a while as this series gets ready to go on an indefinite pause for the foreseeable future. But before we talk about whether or not this series should continue and will continue, let's talk about what's going to be happening this Saturday morning in Fort Worth. I am happy to be joined by Billy Embody, who is a prolific college football reporter um, does a lot of work a lot of across a lot of different channels but we've got him on this week to talk to us about SMU um, as he covers SMU for SMU on three and is also a part of the Dave Campbell's Texas Football Republic of Football Network covering the Mustangs as well so Billy thank you so much for for taking some time and joining us today anytime thanks for having me fun yeah, you know, it, it's this, this is a great rivalry, and, you know, I, I know that, that you do a lot with LSU, too, and so you're used to some of these regional rivalries and how important they can be, and, and, and SMU is a little bit of a newer, newer cover for you, but as you kind of joined up at a, at a good time here, what is the state of, of SMU athletics with, with all of the just kind of the, the way this program has been buoyed by the invite to the ACC? Um, how, how are spirits around Highland Park these days? Yeah, spirits are pretty high, and and you know, they would go a lot higher if they could come away with a win in the battle for the iron skillet this weekend, for sure. But it's a it's a huge time uh, for SMU right now. I mean, the move to the ACC is something that, you know, people will have their opinions on in terms of how it got done with the money and things like that. But this is a program that has a lot of history, multiple national championships, Doak Walker, the Pony Express, all of those things. And they were the ones that got the death penalty. And it's been a long journey back to even relevance uh for smu you know getting to the point where they've won two of the last three iron skillets you know sunny dykes obviously had a hand in that uh, but the facilities around campus about 200 million dollars just in football facilities alone in the last couple of years or so uh, between things that have been completed things that are being worked on right now and now to get to the acc it's just rejuvenated a lot of people who were probably casual SMU fans over the last however long. Uh, There's kind of this lost generation of SMU alums where they went to school where soccer was rolling and football wasn't a thing, whether it was they were on the death penalty or football just was coming back. And so for those people now in their time where they can support the university financially, especially in athletics, they've kind of been casuals in that sense and now the acc has kind of grabbed them back nil has grabbed a lot of people back sunny dykes is kind of one of those motivating factors for a lot of people to support the school and so it has been uh quite the ride to get to this point but they know that they have to kick the door down win a conference championship in a aac that is very different without cincinnati houston um, and schools like that so they have to get it done on the field. They had a good showing against Oklahoma, which has kind of got to people thinking that they can pull it off in Fort Worth this weekend. But uh, they have to break that door down and uh, get this thing across the finish line because until then, they're just going to be a school with a lot of money that has potential for a lot of reasons. But they need to uh, you know, do well in conference. But in particular, uh, a win against TCU would go a long way, too. Yeah, I mean, I think that that those of us that follow college football have never questioned whether SMU has the money to compete at a high level um, in a Power Five conference. But I think you bring up an interesting point of getting that money back invested, um, and, and that kind of segues. You segued nicely into that as well. 
SMU, you said that journey to relevance. And I think you could argue their relevance, depending on where you live, how much they matter in the, in the greater scheme of college football. And you could say the same thing about the partners you're going into the ACC with, with Stanford and Cal. Um, none of those programs have really done anything in the last five, six, seven years that would elevate them nationally. Um, but SMU is such a unique scenario because they've been trying so hard to get into the power five. They, you know, they, they wanted the big 12 invite, even if they deny it, they, you know, they wanted to be a part, um, have a seat at that table. And when TCU got that a little over a decade ago, um, I think that was kind of a, a call to arms for a lot of that SMU fan base and the SMU donor base. But in the decade since, um, you know, I, I don't think they've won uh, the, the AAC yet. They've been close. They've had some great seasons. I think they've spent a little bit of time in the top 25. They haven't quite been able to get over that hump. What do you think is the holdup for the reason they haven't been able to achieve that next level of success? And do you think that they can be successful more quickly with a power five conference kind of in their back pocket? Yeah, it, it's been I use the word journey, but it's true. They they hired June Jones. They made him the $2 million man, and that was a big deal for SMU. And he got them back to bowl games. He got them to a Conference USA championship game. And then you get to where that program plateaued and cratered under June Jones, uh, kind of towards the end of his college career. And then you bring in Chad Morris. He revitalizes the program. He shows kind of what it takes financially to maybe – support a staff, win, do, uh, I mean, even simple things that are now commonplace across college football, like a big football video department and and doing hype videos and things like that. And he really brought it up to that level and said, okay, this is kind of what needs to happen. But he caught, you know, a flash in the pan, had a good bowl season, moves on. The roster from there was not in great shape. So Sonny Dykes comes in and he was the right hire for the right moment in the history of SMU where you know, he wanted to embrace Dallas and then the transfer market kind of started to happen and things like that. And they really took advantage of it and brought in a Shane Bouchelle or Reggie Robertson and all these different guys and, you know, brings them to top 25. They're, you know, going into Memphis undefeated. And for whatever reason, it's probably depth. It's I think a lot of it was recruiting defensive talent, uh, mm -hmm. quite honestly, those things didn't happen where SMU couldn't get over the hump against Memphis and then they lose three of their last four or whatever it was. And you can kind of go through those seasons and it was the same song, different dance. And last year, Rhett Lashley comes in, he's got a decent roster, but they needed to address some issues. And so they went out and went heavy into the transfer portal and, you know, went out and got X player, Y player, got some different players to kind of plug some holes, but it still wasn't to that next level yet. But they were able to overcome a tough start to the season with two Power 5 opponents in Maryland and TCU. They played Cincinnati. They played UCF. And they finished the regular season, their last seven games, five and two. And that was a mark that SMU, I don't think, has done in a decade uh, in terms of finishing in November. And so that was kind of a, a check mark. They went up to Tulsa where they hadn't won in over a decade and won. They beat Houston, a team that was picked as – you know, one of the top teams in the AAC and and beat them and sent them on their way to the Big 12. They've kind of done these little things. And then this past offseason, they go and they get a top 10 transfer class. And guys, especially on the defensive side of the ball, where they've completely revamped it. I mean, they're, they're guys up front that I haven't seen around SMU in, in years. They've got size. They've got athleticism. They have a brand new linebacking core, um, I think, with – five new faces, um, one of which is a uh, returner, but 
got a spot start last year. And then the secondary is uh, three of the five starters are all transfers and, and, you know, a couple of them from power five ranks. So it's been a thing where NIL is also kind of elevated to that next level. The first year it was kind of about keeping the roster intact because a lot of players were, you know, there was a lot of rumors going around that they were going to go to TCU uh, with Sonny Dykes and that was a real thing. And so a lot of that NIL money was spent keeping a lot of the core of the roster this past off season, they said, all right, let's get aggressive. And they were able to bring in one of the top transfer classes. So it's kind of been all these different coaching changes have kind of come at interesting times where each coach has had a different scenario where the program's better coming in, but they still had their own holes to fill in a big way um, with, with the coaching changes that have been around SMU. You bring up that defense, and I think you kind of answered a lot of the questions I was going to have. But, you know, SMU hasn't often had a trouble scoring the football, and, and they seem to be, like, in a, in a good mode for that, especially coming off of that 69 to nothing win against Prairie View. Um, but, but I think when you look at their defense, holding an Oklahoma team that has kind of shredded teams, you know, in their early going uh, to 28 points is, is a pretty good sign going forward. And, and that's something that, uh, you know, Sonny Dykes talked about when he was at SMU and that Rhett Lashley has kind of carried over as well is that in order then to, to compete at the highest level, they have to be able to field a defense that can kind of keep pace with, with their offense. And it looks like they potentially might be doing that. Is In addition to all the transfers, all the holes that they plugged, is there something schematically that's different about this team? Or is this just a, a group of bigger, better athletes playing at a higher level? Yeah, it, it's it's definitely the personnel, in my opinion, uh, just because you have this defense with Scott Simons, who he had a top 25 defense at Liberty. I think one of them was top 10. Um, and so he's a you know proven play caller in that sense, just from an overall standpoint. He's not coming in and learning on the job. Last year, I think they would probably go back and do it differently, where they did not spend as much time as they should have on fundamentals. And so the tackling was pretty poor. A lot of it was they knew they only had a starting 11 and that was the guy that those were the guys that they really had to roll with. There wasn't much beyond that there. They had three linebackers that they could roll with. They had a freshman emerge at safety late, but they didn't have much uh, depth. So they, their idea was, Hey, let's try to master the defense, the actual scheme as best we can with the guys we have. And it was a veteran bunch, but it just wasn't good. I mean, they were in the hundreds about 115 or so, I think, uh, last year defensively this year they brought in a bunch of transfers and they said we are getting back to basics they did it in the spring where they spent an hour tackling and teaching it from the ground up they did it again kind of over the summer during those little moments that that coaches can kind of teach that type of stuff and then they did it again in fall camp and we've seen it be vastly improved and so the players that they have can execute the defense a lot better than the prior group. And that's no disrespect to their effort. It's just, you know, the reality when you bring in a six, four, 330 pound nose tackle and, and Jordan Miller, uh, Elijah Roberts, who's six, four, 280, who's playing your strong side defensive end. They've got returners like Devere Levelston and Elijah Chapman. And they added Corey Roberson from Oklahoma and Cam Robertson, who was an all conference USA freshman from North Texas on the edge. They just revamped this group so much where You'll see it on Saturday. They'll roll like a platoon off at certain points. And they'll when they get an opportunity, maybe if TCU is sustaining a drive to sub a whole group, they'll do that. And that's because they now have that depth to make that happen. And, and the thing about the OU game is two of those touchdown drives were short fields. The first touchdown was a block punt. And, you know, OU took over at like the SMU 38. 
And then it was the last drive of the game where uh, OU was able to take over after SMU had to go for it on fourth down. And so they really did a good job. They had one 94-yard touchdown drive that they gave up. They gave up another another one in there too. But, I mean, like you said, to hold an OU team that just blitzed Tulsa uh, last weekend too, especially, is is kind of a – you know, each game is different and all those things, but that's a pretty good sign that SMU is at least on track defensively. And I, I, I could see this being maybe a lower scoring iron skillet battle because of that than maybe we've seen in the past. Well, you say that, but you're not taking into account TCU's defensive struggles. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that, how that kind of plays out. Um, I think too, one of the biggest differences, and you mentioned that with the depth of the defensive line is it seems like they're dem- uh, generating a lot more quarterback pressure and against a TCU offensive line that has been, maybe better than we anticipated, but still not at the elite level that last year's was. I think that's absolutely a, a, a place for concern for Sonny Dykes and Kendall Bryles on the offensive side of the ball. Um, you know, 12 sacks through the early goings of the season. You mentioned Elijah Roberts, who, who has, leads the team with three. Um, they're, they're kind of getting them in bunches. You know, averaging four, four sacks a game is a, is a pretty good thing despite whoever you're playing. So um, the secondary, you talked about being really solid. They're not generating a ton of turnovers. But it seems like in their their coverage skills have been pretty good. Um, they probably haven't faced like like Oklahoma is still Oklahoma and they still have talent littered. But uh, I think maybe the the it'll be interesting to see what they look like against TCU's wide receiver core. Is it kind of finally starts to come together and look like the unit that we thought it could be? Um, but there have been a lot of turnover issues from the TCU side, so we'll, we'll see if maybe they can they can get their hands on a, on a few more interceptions in this game. Um, let's flip it over to the offensive side of the ball. Um, I think that, you know, Preston Stone, who was a, a Sunny Dykes commit, um, but a guy that was so highly touted, had offers um, from all over the country, is finally getting a chance for this really to be his team. Um, and it seems like he's really grown into the role, not just with his on-the-field play, but but as a leader and a guy that the rest of the team is kind of looking to to kind of carry the banner for them. What have you thought of his performance through the first three games of the season? Yeah, I, I think Preston has done a really nice job distributing the ball, uh, ten different receive over ten different receivers in three straight games, which is especially after last year with Rasheed Rice, where SMU kind of had to force feed it to yeah. him, uh, where the they had receivers hurt on top of that too. It, it, it's been a very clear change, and there there is something about the offense right now where they're and this is why maybe the Prairie View A and M game is big. I know competition and things like that is not there, but just having the confidence where you can hit the big play, you can connect yeah. on some of those explosives that in the OU game, you open the game and you get Roger Daniels uh, with three steps on a guy and you miss him deep. Two plays later, you're punting, punt blocked, touchdown the other way for a critical moment, just opening uh, that game that you know really impacted it uh, overall. And I, I think this will be a good, good test for SMU as to whether they're able to get after that TCU secondary and Joe Gillespie does an awesome job being able to limit those explosive plays. I'm really intrigued how SMU is trying to scheme up some either explosives or just finding those zones and finding those opportunities in the intermediate game, which hasn't been bad for SMU at all, but some of those opportunities they've had to hit big plays, they haven't hit. And so this is a game where you can truly test that and see if you can bring it together because that's maybe the area where, They haven't hit on all cylinders, Um, but right now Preston Stone is doing a really good job avoiding back-breaking turnovers. I mean, his interception late against Oklahoma, the game was over. Um, They could have maybe had a miraculous comeback, but um, it was just one of those things where it it just, that's how it went. But 
you know, last year, Tanner Mordecai's interception was a huge turning point in that game. He had some of those in other big games. Preston Stone, three games in, hasn't had that back-breaking interception moment or big turnover. And so SMU playing clean, and if the defense isn't going to be able to get some of those turnovers that they want to, they're going to have to win the turnover battle because look at the game last year when it ended up coming down to it, that critical Tanner Mordecai turnover, it ended up being a one-possession game, and that was the difference. And so um, SMU has to take care of the football. I think that's where Preston Stone does a really good job. He'll throw it away uh, for the most part when when um, he feels like he needs to, whereas maybe sometimes in the past they might have forced it a little bit. Yeah, he definitely seems like a mature quarterback when it even, even despite this kind of his limited experience and in big game situations. And he's certainly, you know, kind of borne that out through the first three games this season. Um, you mentioned the wide receivers and how many different guys have gotten involved in the offense. Um, it's it's kind of crazy to see there's only one guy with double digit receptions through game one and coming off of a team that relied on Rasheed Rice so much. That that's kind of unusual. I've got to talk about one one receiver in particularly, and and I think we all know who I'm gonna say. Um, you know, the, the, I don't want to call it controversy, but, but there's always a little, it's kind of nice to see this rivalry and see a guy flip from one side to the other. You saw, we saw Sunny Dykes leave SMU to come to TCU and we saw Jordan Hudson uh, move into a really nice apartment in Midtown, um, to go to SMU <laughs> this year. What was the recruitment like for, well, we can't say recruitment. He went in the portal. He did it all on his own. I'm sure there were no phone calls happening behind the scenes, no bags of money being traded off, um, but what, what was that kind of – how big was it for them to get Jordan Hudson? And, you know, through three games, he only has five receptions, 100 total yards, but he does have two touchdowns. What's his role going to be on this team going forward, and how nice is it for SMU fans to take away what would have been TC's top returning receiver from a year ago? Yeah, the, the, the whole apartment thing in the car, that is one of the all-time – and incredible great. message board rumors that I guess I uh, know isn't it great with, uh, we get it with NIL now but no he's not living in a uh it was actually the W hotel that they that uh, was the W you're right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know there have been a couple different ones <laughs> yeah he's not he's not living there he's not he doesn't have a great car so um it's one of those things where people just gotta you know uh, we call it on the message it- boards co- copium uh a little bit yeah. so isn't it isn't it nice though to have a little bit of juice back in this rivalry yeah absolutely i love and, that it matters on the message boards yeah and i'm i'm all for that like you know i've you kind of can need a little a little bit there's some great tcu accounts on twitter that you know i've gone back and forth with here and there that are good guys that are you know on it uh i i'd say and it's it's nice you know i mean it, it's it's nice to have that spice to it, whether it was yeah. Sonny Dykes, whether it was, you know, Jordan Hudson and Kyron Chambers, guys like that coming over. But to Jordan Hudson, um, I I would like to see him get a bigger role because he has been so explosive when given opportunities. He caught the first touchdown of the year on a big bomb against Louisiana Tech. Uh, he caught a touchdown last week against Prairie View A&M uh, to open things up again. And with Jordan, you can tell that his competitiveness is – right there at the top with any of the receivers on the roster. And he's still a young guy just going into his second year of college. And that's something that through the recruiting process, when us that on three made him a five-star, that was something that stood out where he was winning balls in competitive fashion. And I think with Jordan, they just want to make sure that they don't put too much on his plate right away. And they do have a lot of veteran guys that can get burned and can get some run. Jordan Curley, um, uh, Keyshawn Smith, Romello Brinson's been a nice uh, surprise. Moochie Dixon, 
all those guys are all factoring in on the outside where Jordan plays, but I still think he's got that ability to set up routes well. And when he goes down the field, he makes competitive plays on the ball. And so I think that's something that if I'm SMU, I'm feeding him a little bit more, you know, he's going to be motivated going into this one. And so his role right now is a, one of the key rotational guys. He did get nicked up at Oklahoma early, but I'll be honest, I was not expecting him to play last week and his ankle just kind of got better throughout the week and SMU had him practicing and he was practicing ready to go. And, you know, he went out there and, and had a good game. So I think with him probably being healthy, he'll, maybe this is his breakthrough game. And and I think it'd be a big key for the offense, along with Jordan Curley, who broke out finally against Prairie View A&M. He kind of had a rough start to the season, but he had a good game a couple of years against TCU. So um, they, they've got some options, but I, I'd like to see more of Jordan Hudson for sure. Before we kind of drill into the, the future of the iron skillet, uh, just looking at SMU's remaining schedule, it sets up really nicely for them. Um, you know, they've got, they'll have a couple of challenging games uh, going on the road at ECU can always be tough. Um, you know, at Rice, which Rice actually looks like a competent offense right now. So, I, you know, I, I think SMU is probably better than Houston. Um, so maybe that won't be as much of a challenge. But is this kind of a – and you kind of alluded to this earlier too. Is this a make it or break it year for SMU? Do they have to win the American Athletic Conference in 2023? I, I think so. Uh, one, you we talked about earlier, Houston, Cincinnati, UCF, all out the door. But – they've invested so much around this program and boosters have and and NIL and things like that too. And so there's a lot of pressure to go out there on the way out of the American athletic conference and win it. And it's there at at the very least, make it to the conference championship game. And, you know, we've seen UTSA struggle here and there. Tulane looks very, very good once again. So if SMU can navigate this schedule, which like you said, does set up well, they've got, they get a buy uh, or they uh, play Charlotte who's, rough right now after TCU they get a bye they play a Thursday play a Friday game and then they're kind of into the back half of that schedule I mean East Carolina Memphis you mentioned Rice those are kind of the games that I'm circling at least right now as far as the okay those are the ones to really watch and they've got to get through but they have a team especially defensively I, I think the mindset with watching SMU now is not necessarily well, the offense has to hit 38 to beat TCU on, on Saturday. Yeah. And maybe they do. Maybe they do. Maybe it is one of those games. But this defense is is very different. And it is not, I would say, an AAC defense. If their yeah. starting 11 is, you know, middle ACC right now. I mean, they they have talent when they're playing at their best and, and doing all those things to be one of the better ones. I think they're they're top they're, I think they're number 35 or something like that in yards per play. They're top 25 in yards per game right now. Um, I like the yards per play a little bit more personally, but because um, of those short fields at Oklahoma, for example, but uh, they, they have that talent to take them all the way when the offense maybe isn't clicking as well as it can. Um, maybe the offense has a bad day with turnovers. The defense yeah. has shown that ability to bow up and, and make stops. You know, even the, there was a backbreaking fumble against Oklahoma. They were driving. They were going to be well inside the OU side of the field, and the defense got to stop. You know, once they had that turnover, so those are moments where you're you're looking at that veteran group, even though they're all new playing together, saying, "Okay, they they might have something here." And um, that's a piece of why I'm 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 pretty confident SMU is going to be playing for the AAC championship come December. 
Yeah, and like you mentioned, they they missed Tulane, they missed UTSA. Those would be kind of the other two teams that you'd expect to be in the mix, especially Tulane once they kind of get healthy, get their quarterback situation back. But um, yeah, otherwise, I mean, they they should going undefeated through their conference slate is certainly not out of the realm of, of expectation or possibility. Um, you know, TCU fans are have big opinions on the battle for the iron skillet. Most TCU fans would say they wish it would have gone away a long time ago, but with SMU making it to the power five, um, you know, it, it, it kind of would have gained a new level of gravity at the end of the day, it's going on pause. Um, I believe 2025. So I think next year will be the last year this is played for a while. So we know what the TCU opinion is. What is from the SMU side? Not, and they've won two of the last three. We know they think that TCU is running scared, whatever, but do do SMU fans want this rivalry to continue or are they kind of secretly okay with it going away for a little bit as well? Yeah. SMU fans want it. And, and, you know, the, yeah, they have that opinion that TC is kind of running away from it for their reasons, which especially before the ACC move, maybe I get, but at the end of the day, this thing has been played for over a hundred years. Yeah. And I, and I went back and forth with a couple of people on Twitter about it uh, from the TCU side. And I said, I've always had this opinion, Texas, Texas A&M. It was stupid that they didn't play, you know, Clemson, South Carolina, they play, um, you know, uh, there's you know, Florida. We've seen Florida state and Florida keep their yeah. series going. You know, there are a lot of games that make a ton of sense in college football. And, you know, like this summer, Sonny Dyke said, you know, man, I think of the big 10, I think of Rutgers and UCLA. And yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, it's one of those things where like, yeah, that's a conference game, but it, it, I love the regional piece of college football and we're seeing it go away in a sense, uh, you know, basically outside of the sec for the most part. But I just think it's a game that makes a lot of sense now that they're both in the power conferences. And, you know, it's a game that you don't have to worry about. All right. Well, what power conference team are we going to figure out if they'll come to Fort Worth or, you know, if we'll go there, or would we do a neutral side or whatever? It's a game that is plug and play. And I, I just I think it's silly that, you know, the the that it's going away. And I I would think that if I didn't cover SMU, I'd think that if I'd covered Rice or whatever. I mean, it's uh just one of those things that makes sense. And even Houston SMU, it's going away, but I would love to see Houston and S yeah. uh Houston and SMU fire that up as a as a non-conference game in the future. So um these are some really good games, and I, you know, I know it's been a little lot it's been lopsided towards TCU lately but SMU had a run back in the day and you know maybe we're I mean I don't know how it'll go the next three years but um if it kept going somebody would go on a run and then a few years from then somebody would probably go on a run because that's how some of these rivalries work outside of I mean, Oklahoma, I get, Oklahoma State yeah I outside of, <laughs> outside of right yeah, I'm one of the I'm one of the few TC fans that's kind of disappointed that it's going away. Um, and I, I kind of disagree. I don't know that it would be a series of runs. I think with both teams kind of on a level playing field, we might see a really competitive rivalry over the course of the next next decade. I'm hopeful it'll come back. But like you mentioned, with with what realignment is doing to college football, when you have such an old rivalry that's so easy to continue, seeing it go off the table, especially now that SMU's gone into Power Five, is, is disappointing to me as a fan. Um, but I, I I understand kind of why TCU is making this decision, especially since it was made prior to the ACC. Um, we'll generously call it an invite uh, to SMU. But I think I think a great one coming up is going to be Stanford and SMU, seeing which fan base can throw more money at each other from across the field. I think that could be a really wonderful burgeoning rivalry uh, for those two programs. Um, okay, final question. Um, you know, obviously this is a hugely important game for both programs. 
TCU is kind of digging itself out of that opening uh, season loss, which looks a lot better now than it did three weeks ago to Colorado. And SMU absolutely feels like they have something to prove and have, has won two of the last three meetings of the Iron Skillet. How do you see Saturday going? Um, if SMU wins, what happens? If TCU wins, what has happened to, to kind of get those results for either side? Yeah, I think if SMU wins, uh, it starts with the defense. Um, they're going to ha have to limit some of those explosive plays. And I mean, I hate to go back again to last year, but you know, TCU I think had two seventy-five plus yard touchdowns on SMU in that game, and then you factor in that interception, and boom, that's the game. And kind of the same thing happened to SMU at Oklahoma in a way. You know, that block punt, they missed the touchdown pass, and all of a sudden that's that's the ball game and, and oh, you kind of scored late uh, on that short field, but um, SMU has been very close to hitting those explosives. And so defensively, they've got to limit them and offensively, they've got to take advantage of those opportunities. And even last year, SMU kind of struggled early in the year in red zone in terms of scoring actual touchdowns. They've got to be able to finish drives and score touchdowns. That's been something that, you know, at Oklahoma, they didn't do, they kicked a field goal early, things like that. They've got to finish with touchdowns. And it, it, to do that, they they can't be just that minuscule off, whether it be timing, whether it be focus, whether it be whatever. Um, they've got to be able to hit those. And and that should be the difference in the game is, is limiting those explosives and hitting them and taking advantage of red zone opportunities. So um, if SMU is going to win, that's what they need to do. If TCU is going to win, I, I think it's going to look a, like the Chandler Moore show. I, I mm -hmm. really do. And I, I think the world of Monty Bailey, I, I uh, saw him a lot uh, in high school and even early on in his career. And he's awesome. And and they have their hands full with, with the running game, too, of, of TCU. But Chandler Morris, he is somebody that I've watched all the way back at Highland Park. And he's just got that moxie about him. We know he's not the biggest guy in the world, but he can pick up yards. He can, you know, be accurate at times. And for TCU, if they're going to roll offensively, Chandler's got to, you know, stir that drink. And and I think if he takes over, that's kind of the concern. And especially if he can run and pick up third and, you know, mediums, third and longs, uh, those are things that he can do with his legs. And if he keeps those drives going and things like that, and they start sustaining him and get SMU on their heels defensively, that's going to be tough. And then on the flip side, I mean, if SMU isn't clicking offensively, this could look like an OU game where, yeah, they could, you know, put up some yards and they outgain the Sooners in that game. But if they're not finishing, if they're turning the ball over at critical moments, that's where TCU could take advantage. I mean, they're, they're a well-coached team and, and that's, kind of what what happened last year. They took advantage of, of opportunities. So um, I I am picking SMU. I've said that at the beginning of the year. I thought, you know, SMU had done enough defensively to really build a unit that can withstand some of the top offenses. And, you know, test one was pretty good. Test two is going to be TCU. And they're, and they're very, very difficult to defend. But um, I think this is going to be a lower scoring game. I think it's going to end up 31-28 or so, uh, something like that. I was going to ask you where the iron skillet is going to end up after this one, but but I think you told us it's heading back to Dallas. So TCU, anonymous TCU Twitter army, you know your uh, subject. Go get up. No, I'm kidding. I would, I would never wish that upon you because they've even come for me and it's not pretty. Um, so <laughs> it could be rough. Uh, I, I think I, I think the one thing is that you brought up, we saw Chandler for the first time in the Houston game 
really use his legs in those third and those second long situations. And I think that was the difference in getting that offense moving. So that's absolutely one of the keys to watch this weekend. Uh, Billy, really appreciate your time. Uh, tell folks where they can find your work, or where they can harass you online. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at Billy Embody and check us out on the SMU on three page at ontheponyexpress.com. And then also uh, State of Dallas podcast, correct? So yes, with uh, the Republic of this, Football. Yes, the State of Dallas podcast. We'll be having you on there too. So we'll flip it around. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so people have to uh, check out both sides of it. Yeah, see, see, see each of us talk crap about the other one's team. It's going to be a delightful thing. Really appreciate your time. <laughs> um, look forward to what I'm sure is going to be a chaotic battle for the Iron Scale at Saturday morning. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. All right, thanks again to Billy for taking the time out of his busy week to help preview the game with us. Shout out to Melissa for doing an excellent job as always. Guys, I want to jump into a couple other things here. We've got Jeremiah Donati. I'm going to play his entire five-minute opening statement for you guys from his time on the Hill earlier this week. Uh, Obviously, some games of the week that I am paying attention to. It's a banger of a weekend for college football. I'm very, very excited about a lot of these games. Uh, And then we're going to get into your mailbag questions. But uh, before we do that, I do want to talk to you guys a little bit about our sponsors. First and foremost, Hell's Half Acre. Love the guys over at Hell's Half Acre. They're doing some really, really cool stuff right now. If you go over to hellshalfacresg.com, you're going to find hats, polos, shirts, pullovers, koozies, other kind of tailgate paraphernalia uh, that you can use to up your game day experience. The football polo that they've got over there right now is one of the coolest polos I've seen. It pairs really nicely with uh, one of their um, kind of snapback hats. You can absolutely get geared up for game day by going over to Hell's Half Acre SG dot com um, and make sure that in the little comment box when you're buying something from them that you tell them you, you heard about them from frogs insider uh, that, that we sent you over that way um, shout out to, to steven and all the cool stuff he's doing over there and if you're at a local costco or a local uh, alcohol beverage vendor um, of the sorts you can go and buy the hell's half lager their partner creation with fort brewery that contributes to the flying tea club NIL efforts for TCU student-athletes. So Hell's Half Acre is doing a lot of really cool stuff in the TCU space. Go ahead and go check them out. Next up, uh, you know, one of my favorite companies on the planet, Home Field Apparel. I've got one of their shirts on right now. Their TCU Give Them Hell basketball shirt is softest shirts and hoodies I've ever experienced. You guys know how much I love my Big Sky hoodie. I think I got a mailbag question actually this week about my hoodies. Um, homefieldapparel.com. You can use the code FROGSIN15. That's FROGSIN15 to get 15% off your first purchase over there on the website and 10% off all subsequent purchases over there. So it's a code that lasts forever. Use it as many times as you want. Please use it. I mean, we're getting into holiday season, right? I know it's only September, but birthday, a lot of fall birthdays, a lot of fall anniversaries, and hey, Nothing better than a home field hoodie for a wedding present if you're in, in the middle of wedding season right now as well. So use Fro- Frogs in 15. Get somebody some comfortable TCU gear uh, to celebrate any kind of milestone or memorial that's coming up in the next couple months for you. Great Christmas gifts as well when it finally, you know, for three or four days in Texas gets cold enough to, to wear something. Um, that's Frogs in 15 over at homefieldapparel.com. You can get all the stuff you need to be geared up for game day. Look, I mean, we got the two best sponsors on the planet here for a podcast like this. Because if you need any kind of TCU apparel, Hell's Half Acre and Homefield Apparel have you covered. All right. Well, we're cruising. Man, I 
Absolutely nailed the ad reads today. You know, we're feeling good. We're having a good time. I'm gonna take a sip of coffee here. Um, all right. I want to talk about something Jeremiah Donati did this week because it seems uh, newsworthy and noteworthy for a couple of different reasons, but it hasn't been getting as much traction as I thought it would have gotten at this point. And I think it's probably because of the timing of everything in the middle of football season. It's always really difficult to steer people's attention away from the games to other kind of peripheral subject matter when it comes to college athletics and this was kind of along those lines it's nil related the kind of fifty thousand foot view of what's going on here is that there have been a lot of conversations over the past several months probably close to a year now about how congress uh, and, and the federal government can step in and help the ncaa regulate uh nil name image and likeness and the transfer portal um, to make things equitable and fair for universities of all sizes and all uh, you know colors and shapes and all that kind of stuff, private versus public, small versus big, um, all these kinds of things. Because right now, as you know, if you've been paying attention to that aspect of college athletics, it feels very unregulated. And there are a lot of ways that, that uh, universities, not universities so much as fans of universities, big donors of universities are finding ways to maybe take advantage of some student athletes in a couple of different ways, especially when it comes to NIL. Um, we've heard stories about, uh, you know, Jaden Rashada was a big one with guaranteed $13 million from the University of Florida that they backed out of as soon as he signed his NLI and got on campus. He's obviously at Arizona State now. Um, there's a kid at Florida who thought he was signing an NIL deal, but it was really kind of a predatory loan where he was getting a lot of money up front and then was signing away 15% of his lifetime football earnings to this group of people. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff that's going on that's somewhat sketchy and shady. And the NCAA has not done what they've needed to do to clean some of that up and provide some regulations and enforcement and um, make sure that these kids are being taken care of because ultimately, at least in my opinion, NIL is a good thing. Um, and, and you hear a lot of college administrators, whether they're athletic directors, university presidents, or, or other folks kind of in, in leadership in universities across the country saying that they like NIL, that they agree with NIL. Coaches are the same way, right? We've heard Sonny Dykes talk about it quite a bit. He thinks it's a good thing. We've been profiting off of these kids for long enough. It's time for them to earn their fair share. Um, but there's a way to go about doing it that makes sure that the kid is A, taken care of, and B, not taken advantage of. And right now, uh, neither of those things have any kind of guardrails in place to make sure that they happen um, or don't happen. So, because the NCAA has been struggling, and obviously Charlie Baker is the new NCAA president, has just come on and and is still kind of getting up to speed on a lot of this. There's you know We'll talk about him in a second as well. Um, but folks from universities and other institutions have been reaching out and, and working with the federal government to try and find a way to legislate what's happening in the NIL and transfer portal spaces. Um, the, and I, there are several legislators in the house of Congress that have, uh, the U S house of representatives that have, 
um, put forth some NIL legislation that have started to try and really figure out what legislation could look like. Uh, and so they've been holding a lot of hearings, a lot of conversations with leadership uh, from various institutions to talk about what could happen and what should happen as far as legislation is concerned. So that all sets up what happened on Wednesday morning, which was the uh, House Committee on Small Business, which is a subcommittee uh, within the U.S. House of Representatives, got together and invited some folks to come and speak on the topic of name, image, and likeness and, and to, to inform some legislators as to what would be a good way to go about legislating NIL. Should it be legislated? Should it be illegal? All these other kinds of questions, right? And so in, in these kind of meetings and hearings, essentially what happens is every, every um, U.S. representative that's on one of these committees has five minutes to just make statements and, and ask questions of the panel that's there and, and just gather as much information as they possibly can. A lot of them like to uh, <laughs> say random stuff about their university or what they did as a student athlete in this case, you know, kind of brag on themselves. And it's always a really fun kind of dynamic to, to watch play out, especially when it has something to do with federal officials trying to legislate college, anything. And, um, that was definitely the case on Wednesday morning. But the reason we're talking about it is because TCU's athletic director, Jeremiah Donati, uh, excellent, excellent human being, uh, has been tabbed as one of the people who is going to go before Congress and answer questions, provide his insight, give his opinion uh, as they start to figure out how to legislate some of the stuff moving forward. And so he did that on Wednesday morning. I thought he did an excellent job. I watched the entire hearing. Uh, he was there with Gene Smith, who is the outgoing athletic director at Ohio State. Uh, Gino Toretta, a former Miami quarterback, was also there. And then a person, who, uh, a woman who I didn't write her name down because I'm an idiot. Um, uh, Megan Statori? I, I, I feel terrible now that the I didn't get the one woman's name. Hang on. I got it on Twitter, though. I'm going to pull that up real quick so I'm not a jerk about it. Um, the four of them were there testifying uh, about their thoughts on NIL. Um, Maddie Salamone, the former D1 student athlete uh, advisory committee chair, was also there. So those were the four folks that, that were testifying before this, this subcommittee in Congress on Wednesday morning. Um, they all started with five-minute opening statements. I'm not going to play any, all of them. I'm not going to play a ton of the, the um, committee hearing as well because that you can go find it on youtube i'll link it in the show notes um, but i did want to drop in jeremiah donati's five minute opening statement because i thought it was really well done um, and he talks a lot about specific actions that he feel could be taken to better uh, regulate and improve name image and likeness at the collegiate level so let's go ahead and just jump in and hear from jeremiah donati on that chairman williams ranking member velasquez and distinguished members of the committee Thank you for allowing me to be here today. As someone who is passionate about college athletics and the opportunity to positively impact young people's lives, it is an honor to testify before you at a time of great change in our industry. Not since the creation and implementation of Title IX over 50 years ago have we seen such changes of this magnitude. It is my hope that any experiences I can draw from may be helpful as we collectively seek solutions to very complicated issues in front of us, none larger than NIL. I have over 15 years of experience working in college athletics and have been the athletics director at TCU for the past six years. 
I also have experience working in the sports agency business representing the interests of professional athletes and coaches. I believe these experiences have given me a unique perspective on many aspects of our business and especially NIL. The concept of allowing student athletes to receive compensation for the use of their NIL makes great sense. After all, the vast majority of college student athletes will not play professionally and it only seems fair that they should be able to monetize their skills and talents. In 2021, when NIL became permissible, student athletes could now enjoy the same rights as ordinary college students. Overnight, they became entrepreneurs, and almost immediately, we began seeing them signing endorsement deals with companies and products. Other NIL activities soon followed. Autograph signings, personal appearances, and community services work, for example. In many cases, it became apparent that they were using this additional income to better support their families. This is a reality for so many of our young people that I believe is often overlooked and is another reason why NIL has been very beneficial. But simply putting money in the pockets of student athletes is not the only value that NIL brings to their lives. There is a tremendous opportunity to educate and give student athletes a set of tools more valuable than any NIL payment. Following NIL's enactment, many athletics departments, including TCUs, unveiled educational programs focused on financial literacy, contract negotiation, business formation, entrepreneurship, brand management, social media promotion, and taxation. Like others, we saw this opportunity to further our mission and formed a partnership between the athletics department and the business school to educate student athletes on these key aspects of entrepreneurship. To illustrate our commitment, we created an endowed professorship in support of NIL education, created courses for credit, office hours with business school faculty, and also dedicated a football suite in the stadium and converted its day-to-day -day use for the teaching and instruction of NIL entrepreneurship. At TCU, we currently support 22 sports and over 550 student athletes. To date, over half of our student athletes have reported NIL deals. While football, basketball, and baseball have dominated national NIL headlines, I have been encouraged to see many other sports at TCU, especially women's sports, participating at a much higher level than anticipated. Despite the positives that have come from NIL, it has also come with a significant number of challenges. From the outset, the lack of uniformity has caused confusion amongst NCAA members, respective donor bases, and student athletes. NIL was implemented without the proper guardrails or mechanisms necessary to effectively manage these changes, and unfortunately, none of these shortcomings have improved, and the legal challenges facing the NCAA have made it difficult to find sustainable solutions. Bad actors are those who break the rules and exploit student athletes for their own personal gain, pay to play from third parties, recruiting and transfer portal inducements are among the unintended consequences that have largely gone unchecked to date. We now find ourselves in a wild, wild west environment across college athletics with little accountability. Sadly, there are countless stories of student athletes and their families being exploited, deceived, and harmed for others' personal gain in these NIL pursuits. And while NIL collectives have provided universities with an efficient tool to fulfill NIL opportunities from donor support, the governance and oversight of these organizations has been inconsistent and in desperate need of uniform oversight. The good news is that there are solutions available. Recently, we have seen progress from federal legislative bills and discussion drafts. I know I'm not alone in my belief that Congress does have the power to bring uniformity, transparency, and fairness to the administration of NIL through enacting legislation that should include, one, agent oversight, two, standardized contracts, three, a national clearinghouse or registry, four, elimination of inducements and pay-for-play, and five, rule enforcement mechanisms. I speak for my athletic director colleagues when I say that the current model is not sustainable and that we all desire to see student-athletes competing under the, under the same fundamental and enforceable rules. 
I strongly encourage this committee and other members of the House to support legislation that will help provide sustainable solutions to NIL while preserving the opportunity for student-athletes to financially benefit from their skills and talents during their college careers. Thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today, and I'm happy to answer any, any questions you have. I want to note two things. The first thing I want to note is how well I think he did at clarifying the positive ways that NIL has played out in real time, especially on TCU's campus. Um, I love the fact that he kind of led with um, the opportunity that student-athletes have now to send some money home to their families, whether they're taking care of siblings or if they're supporting their parents, uh, extended family, whatever that might be. Um, we know, and it's it's almost a stereotype of, of a D1 student-athlete at this point, and I want to try and avoid falling into any of those stereotypical kind of traps, but there are a large... Uh, there, there is a large demographic of student athlete who comes from a less financially stable background, um, and they find themselves in a situation where maybe they're, um, maybe they're a first-time college uh, attendee in their family. Um, maybe they're, uh, you know, ex their expect financial expectations and obligations that that these kids have for their families back home. Um, and historically they haven't been able to, at least above board provide for their families while they're, they're off in, in college and, and doing this thing, pursuing this, this professional athletics career. Um, so Donati, I thought did a really good job of talking about the real ways that some student athletes, and there are some on TCU's campus doing this right now are taking their NIL dollars and supporting their families back home. Um, it's it's a real thing. I know for a fact that it's happening on TCU's campus. I'm sure it's happening a bunch of other campuses as well. Uh, and, and that's a really important aspect of name, image, and likeness that can't get lost in the midst of all of this, all of these conversations about regulation. So I'm really glad that Donati brought that up. The second thing that I think is really cool that he brought up was this idea of how we can regulate NIL through a national clearinghouse, through agent oversight, um, standardized contracts and then eliminating uh, inducements and pay for play because reality is is that name image and likeness was always supposed to be about the kids brand and not the school that the kid played for uh, two really cool ways that I saw that style of NIL play out were with Bijan Robinson down at the University of Texas last year with his mustard his Bijan's Dijon uh, that was obviously not branded anyway, University of Texas. Um, it was just him with a mustard company doing some Dijon mustard. Uh, I thought that was a really fun kind of NIL um, opportunity. And the other one was with Dakotas Crawford uh, when he was still at, at Nebraska doing the uh, HVAC company uh, promotions and sponsorships uh, playing off of his name, Dakotist. Um So that's kind of what NIL is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be, hey, if you come to this school and you play offensive line, you're going to get $50,000. That's pay for play, right? It's not going to be, it's not supposed to be, hey, if you hit the portal and come to us, we got a, we got a briefcase with $250,000 in it that you can have, that, that an inducement to come to our university. Uh, that's never what NIL was supposed to be about. And so I really appreciate that Donati explicitly stated that he wants to find ways to eliminate that part of what's going on in the NIL space right now. Um, again, you can go and watch the whole um, 
whole committee hearing on YouTube. I'll link that in the show notes below. Uh, but I just wanted to get, give you guys some insight into into my thoughts on it, and then also play that five minute clip from from Donati for you because again, I thought he did, I thought he did a tremendous job um, of of kind of providing um, providing some insight from his perspective because you know this is a guy who's been an agent in a past life. He he has agency experience, so he understands what goes on on that side of things. He understands, obviously, the athletic director's struggle in, in the here and now of, of trying to, um, you know, still fundraise for the athletics department, create a budget that's viable for the athletics department, and then also make sure that um, donors have all of the information that they need to have if they want to participate in NIL with, with a collective like the Flying T. Uh, he talked later on in the hearing about seeing in real time donors making those financial decisions about, am I going to invest in this facility on campus? Am I going to invest in this scholarship opportunity? Or am I going to give to a collective that's going to pay our, our student athletes? And, and these are decisions that donors across the country are having to make right now. And, and I think it's important to not lose sight of the fact that this has a financial impact on the university just not in the way that we would normally think. Um, so again, I thought Jeremiah did a f- phenomenal job up on the hill, um, and uh, maybe maybe might try and reach out to him and see if he'll he'll come on the pod and and talk a little bit more in depth about about <clears throat> all of that kind of stuff. We'll we'll see. Maybe that's a, a bye week opportunity down the road. Um. Okay. All right. Moving on. Three games that I am watching this week, y'all. This is. There, there's uh, like I said off the top. There are some bangers this week. I mean, we got six games with ranked opponents. It's the most since I believe 2006. So we're talking 17 years since we've had a weekend like this in college football. And I, you know, I don't know what the heck's going to happen. I'm dropping my picks later today on Twitter. Uh, I went three and seven last week. We're going ten and zero this week, though. I'm very confident in that. Fully confident in going ten and zero this week. We're going to absolutely crush it. Please don't tail my bets. All right. This is not gambling advice. It's not gambling advice. I should probably say that. Um, three games, though, that I am watching this week that I'm very interested in. Uh, the first one is at 11 a.m. ABC. Uh, I obviously will be at the SMU game and TCU game as well during this time, but I will have this up on an iPad or something. And that's Florida State and Clemson. Um, <clears throat> Florida State's 3-0. Clemson's 2-1. and Clemson dropped that game on Monday night in week one to Duke. Um, and I think what Duke did very, very well in that game was gave other schools a blueprint to how to stop Garrett Riley's offense at Clemson. They don't have a ton of wide receivers that can get separation right now. And I think that uh, Duke's secondary did a, a fantastic job of locking those guys down. And I think Florida State's secondary is better. Um, Florida State and Mike Norvell have done a fantastic job of of hitting the portal, getting a lot of talent in. And, uh, you know, yes, they struggled with Boston College on Saturday. I watched a ton of that game, too. Um, And that was a weird, weird football game. Boston College came out and probably should have won that game, but had 18 penalties that, that, I mean, you had 18 penalties and you only lost by two. That's basically a win for Boston College. Um, But I wonder if there was a little bit of a look ahead feel there for Florida State because they knew Clemson was coming up on the schedule. Um, so now they travel to Death Valley, try to stay unblemished in ACC play. And, I mean, if they beat Clemson, Florida State's probably 
the, they, they already are the favorite, and they're the clear front runner if they beat Clemson to win the ACC this year. And there might not be a loss on their schedule if they get past this game on Saturday. So we might see we might see Florida State back in the college football playoff again if they get past past Clemson this week. So super excited about that one. Um, Florida State is minus two and a half right now. I think I'm taking I'm taking the Knolls and the points on that one. Uh, the next game that I am looking forward to. Oh, all right. I, I think I hold a minority opinion among TCU folks at this point. Um, I like Deion Sanders and I like Colorado. Um, I know that that's an unpopular opinion based because of, of all of the hype of the offseason. It didn't feel like Colorado was even playing an opponent in week one, more or less TCU. Obviously, they came away with that win in week one over the Horned Frogs as well. But... I, it, it, and it's funny because I talk to people on both sides of the argument here who, you know, if you talk to somebody who doesn't like Dion, doesn't like Colorado, their perspective on the issue is that, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm the only one that hates Dion in Colorado. Every, they get so much love from the media. Everybody else loves them so much. I just, I, I'm tired of hearing about him, tired of talking about him. Or if you're on the other side of it and it's like, I love Dion. And this is mostly Colorado folks, but I love the and the media hates him and oh he just gets so much hate in the media and, and nobody can stand him and it's us against the world and da da da, da. Uh, and it's just funny to to see how um, polarizing Dion has been in such a short amount of time in the college athletics landscape. But the reality is is that it's a fun team to watch. Shadur Sanders is legit. Travis Hunter is legit. I know he's not playing this weekend when they go up to Autzen and play Oregon. Um, but, uh, you know, I just, I've, I've had a lot of fun watching Colorado play football this year. And I'm excited to see this game against Oregon, uh, especially when you consider the fact that, don't forget, you know, back when Colorado announced that they were coming to the Big 12, Dan Lanning, Oregon's head coach, had this press conference uh, where he, he asked the media after he was asked about his reaction to Colorado leaving, what have they ever won? What have they ever done for the conference? I don't remember them winning anything. Which, I mean, Colorado's only beaten Oregon once since they've been in the Pac-12. Uh, but those are fighting words. And now we know that Colorado's a much better football team than anybody anticipated them being this year. Uh, I don't think they come away with the win in Oregon. But I'm very excited to see these two offenses just throw haymakers at each other the entire game. Because I don't think either of these defenses has what it takes to shut the other offense down. Um, I think Colorado covers that three-touchdown spread, but I think Oregon eventually comes away with the win there. I'm very excited to see that one. That's at 2.30 on ABC. And then the third game that I am very excited to watch, and y'all are going to make fun of me for this one, but I do not care because I want the chaos. And I'm going to tell you about a conversation I had with Mac Engel earlier this week as well. Um, 6.30, or sorry, 6 o'clock on Fox, Oregon State travels to Washington State. The lone remaining members of the future Pac-12 conference vying for future conference supremacy. Both of these teams are hilariously fun, right? Washington State already has a win over uh, Luke Fickle in, in Wisconsin this year. Oregon State sitting at 3-0, and number 14 in the country. Um, and I just I want to see the future chaos of the Pac-12 play out in real time. Um, very excited about this game. Oregon State's a three-point favorite. I think they cover that. Um, but I also think the over 58 and a half hits. So uh, I, uh, I'm just very much looking forward to this game. I don't know a ton about either of these teams either. And so that's another reason I'm, I'm interested in, 
and seeing what these teams have to offer because these could very well be like a bowl. Like, you know, Frogs make the Alamo Bowl and they're playing Washington State. Oh, well, I can I can go back and say, hey, I, I watched their game against Oregon State. I know a little bit about them. Um, so that's an, another intriguing game for me. Two more ranked undefeated teams. Uh, one has to win, one has to lose. Very excited about that game as well. Now, I want to tell you, uh, kind of a, another side reason that I'm very interested in this football game is because of a conversation I had with Mac Engel earlier this week. Love Mac. Y'all know I'm longtime columnist for the Star-Telegram. Um, we were sitting there before Sonny Dyke's press conference on Tuesday morning, and he was asking, you know, like, what's... Uh, we were just kind of riffing about, you know, the Pac-12 and, and how good it is this year. And I said, you know what I want to see more than anything else? is them keep the conference together just as a two-team conference for the next couple of years. And, and the, here's how that can happen. Um, so there is a, a minimum membership number that has to be hit for a conference to be you know, considered a conference uh, that has you know, all of the perks of you know, NCAA payouts for tournaments, bowl berths, all this other kind of stuff. College football playoff berth. Um, and that number is eight. Right, so obviously, after this year, the Pac-12 won't have eight. There's a two-year grace period for a conference to get back up to that number eight if they fall below it, which means there is a real path forward for Oregon State and Washington State to be a two-team conference for the next two years. They could be a two-team conference. They play one regular season game every year. They play a conference championship every year. And then if I'm Oregon State and Washington State, I'm G5 selling out the rest of my games. I got 11 games. Pay us and we'll come play you. We'll get a couple, uh, you know, we'll get an FCS school at home. We'll get a couple G5 schools at home. Um, And then, yeah, go on the road. Go on a tour. And say, oh yeah, LSU, you want us to come? You want us to come to Baton Rouge? All right, give us give us five hundred thousand dollars. We'll come to Baton Rouge. Oh man, uh, Ohio State, you want to play Oregon State in the shoe for a non-conference game? Give us give us eight hundred k. We'll come and we'll play you in the shoe. And uh, you know, make make some of your money back by selling out all your games. You play one conference game a year for a regular season conference championship, and then you can go into your conference game uh, and see who gets a bowl berth, right? And if there's a year where Oregon State beats Washington State, runs the table in con- runs the table in their 11 game non-conference schedule and then beats Washington State in the conference championship game. Oh hey, you got a Pac-12 Oregon State in the college football playoff this year? Let's see what they can do. I want that because that's mass chaos to me. Um that also is a hilarious slight to uh, like the Mountain West and the AAC who have both been pursuing these schools and having conversations with them about membership. Um, I know the AAC maybe backed off of them a little bit, which I think is a foolish thing for the AAC to do personally. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I just, I want the, the funniest outcome possible in the midst of all of this realignment. And to me, that would be it. So there's that. All right. <clears throat> Let me open up. I normally pull all of these mailbag questions into uh, like a Word doc, but I didn't do that for this episode. So I'm just going to go to the thread that I created on, on, on the website and scroll down and kind of keep going here. So we're going to get into the mailbag right now. 
and we're just going to scroll down. So normally I like sort these out into like, all right, the TCU questions and then some of the sillier questions, but we're just running it today. We're just running it. TCU 1331, would you rather fight a horse-sized horned frog or, or 1,000 horned frog-sized horses? Give me the 1,000 horned frog-sized horses. 1,000 horned frog-sized horses. Do you understand how small a horned frog is? Even 1,000 of them? I'm just, I'm just, how far do you think you could punt a horned frog-sized horse? Because that's what I'm doing. I'm just swinging my feet. I'm kicking these these tiny horses as far as they can go. A horned frog-sized horse does not seem intimidating, even if it's a thousand. A horse-sized horse-sized horned frog. I have. I want nothing to do with that. That sounds terrifying to me. Do you know how much blood would come out of that horned frog's eyes? So much blood. I'm not. I'm not messing with that. Give me a thousand horned frog-sized horses. <clears throat> Petition to change the name to Male M A L E Bag because I'm 12 at heart. Sold, Max. I'm sold. Uh, TCU Firefrog says, "I feel like KB has been holding a lot back with what you have seen from practices. Would you agree, or is that just wishful thinking on my part?" So, this is an interesting one because we haven't been at practice since like two weeks before the Colorado game. That's when they closed off practices to the media. So we haven't been back there since then. Um, and we didn't even at that point in time get to see the full scope of practice. We only saw the first hour and then we were kind of given the boot. Uh, I think the struggle right now isn't necessarily that they've been holding stuff back. I think that when you move as fast as they do on offense, right? I think they're the second or third fastest team as far as plays per minute in the country. Um, you have to be incredibly precise in your execution or you're going to get like we've seen a lot of pre-snap penalties you're going to get some holding calls um, you're going to have some guys not be where they should be uh, when you're actually running the play and we've seen all of those things from an execution standpoint so I wonder if the tempo is impacting execution a little bit um, I don't know that they've necessarily been holding back I'm sure he's got stuff in the playbook Kendall Bryles does that he hasn't rolled out there yet because they haven't gotten to that part of the season yet where they want to show some of that stuff on film. Um, and there have been some play calls in third and short and fourth and short that I've, I've vehemently disagreed with. Right. And I think I've covered that on the pod and on the site. Uh, I don't, I don't like throwing behind the line of scrimmage on third and short or fourth and short. I don't like throwing it out into the flat uh, where you've got one wide receiver trying to block two guys. Uh, and you're like, Oh, okay, let's, let's, let's get a couple yards from that. I, I, I want to move straightforward down the field and I don't think we've seen quite enough of that from this offense at times this year um, but there's also been a, an execution element and a penalties element that I think are very real and how they've impacted the offense uh, Sonny Dykes mentioned it after the Houston game and and so um, that's kind of that's kind of my response to that question I don't know that he's necessarily holding a lot back I do think he's holding some back um, but I think that there is another level of this offense that we haven't seen yet and another level of execution that hopefully we'll start to see on Saturday. Um, Riframo 9. It seems like the skillet has a bit more juice this year than I would have expected when the schedule came out. Ticket prices are high, foretelling great audience, uh, great attendance for the game. SMU is always fired up to play us, but even more so the last two years since we took Sunny. Now with the ACC move, the indefinite pause of the rivalry, Jordan Hudson going across the Trinity. And SMU's somewhat good start to the season. I get the sense SMU fans and players are really feeling themselves this week. I expect an A-plus effort from them. I absolutely do as well. Have you been around this team and if this week 
And if so, have you gotten a sense from the players and coaches that they are particularly fired up for the opportunity to put SMU in their place? Do you sense we might be sleepwalking into a buzzsaw this weekend, as we tend to do against SMU? I think TCU has already sleptwalked into a buzzsaw once this year, and that was against Colorado. I don't think they'll do it again. Um, J.P. Richardson had a really funny quote um, at, at Media Days on Tuesday. He said that Andrew Coker, because it's his first time playing in the skill right since he transferred from Oklahoma State, uh, and, and he said Andrew Coker was telling the team, SMU lives to beat TCU. Uh, and that's that's the reminder that Coker has been giving to his teammates this week. SMU lives to beat TCU. They exist solely to beat the Frogs. They want this one more than they want any other game. We have to match their energy. So that message is making its way through the team this week. We'll see how that bears out on Saturday morning. But TCU is not going to be, uh, at least they have every opportunity not to sleepwalk into this game against SMU. Younger Heel asks, how devastating was the Colorado loss for the brand? No individual loss is devastating for a brand. We hate it because, right? I say we. TCU fans hate it because, uh, you know, you lost to Dion, a game you were three-touchdown favored in, and that's <clears throat> that should not happen, right? It shouldn't happen. But some, sometimes weird stuff goes down. Uh, and we saw that again on Saturday night when Colorado... Had to had to beat Colorado State in overtime, even though they were three touchdown favorites. Baylor lost as a three touchdown favorite to Texas State earlier this year. Oregon's a three touchdown favorite to Colorado this week. I don't think they're going to cover that, right? And so, no, there are no there are no. I mean, unless you're like losing to an FCS school, there are no. No, that loss was not devastating to the brand. TC's brand is as as high as it has been, as valued as it has been ever. Just trust me on that one. Yes, there are some things I'm not telling you with that statement. Mantikos is asking Sunny Dykes, how the, is the D playing, in your opinion? Immunity. Is the D playing better, in your opinion? The same as, why do we play 10 to 12 yards off the slot in third and fourth and manageable? No, it's not the same question. It is not the same question. Um, I think the way that I've been trying to frame questions, because, I, you know, I, and, and I think Jeremy mentioned this on a Frogcast episode recently too, you know, we don't go into those press conferences like mad and, and fired up like guys, like, like fans get. Uh, I am a TCU grad. I, I have two degrees from the university. I love the school. You cut me open, I'm going to bleed purple. But I've been doing this for long enough now where I don't I just I don't get angry when I see TCU lose a game or when I have questions about what they're doing offensively or defensively and I also understand that if you go into a press room and you ask questions that are from that place of like oh I'm really upset about the outcome of this game and I want to kind of hammer the coach a little bit about it you're not going to get the answers that you want uh you're not going to get any answers um from from a coach in that regard and I think you know my personal kind of question asking style I like asking more open-ended questions because you get longer answers and what I've discovered over the years is that the longer you let a head coach talk the more you're actually going to learn um and so when I ask a question like, um, you know, 
like if you've if you've listened to the press conferences the last few weeks, I've asked about third down execution. The way that I've asked about it, or at least the first week, was, um, you know, you're four and you're four and fifteen against Nichols on third down. You know what needs to happen for you to improve in that category? I think this past week against Houston, I said, you know, you're, you're six of 15 on third down. What's your assessment of how you did on third down today? And we got a long answer about execution, about penalties. He hinted at play calling a little bit in that answer as well, right? And so there's a way to ask questions um, that you guys are, are are getting fired up about on the board without being an asshole about it directly to a head coach because that's just not good for anybody right like that's not going to get you the the answer that you're looking for whether you agree with the answer or not right like they're not gonna they're not going to answer that question that way um and and the reality is too it's like there is there is a tension between media and and coaching staffs Uh, that's that's always going to be the case but there's also you know i think a long-term relationship and play that is at stake there right and if you are constantly the one that is hammering the nail um you know there there are other things at play there in that room Uh, there there are some really interesting dynamics and there are dynamics that change week to week and day to day depending on who you're working with uh and and so that's kind of my answer to that i know it's probably not the answer any of you want to hear um but i am i am uh, trying to ask questions to get answers to to the questions that you guys are asking but i'm never going to go in and just straight up ask and a question that comes from a place of anger or or disappointment uh because that just that's just not how this that's just not how this works um if i was a national media person or if i was untethered to a university uh a, a single university my my style of questioning might change a little bit um but that's simply not the case uh jeff mc88 I don't think Sonny wants additional non-conference power for away games, so it would just be a group coming here. Oh, this is to my question to the board. Uh, who do you want to see replace SMU on the schedule? In light of that, maybe one of the service academies where we could honor the military branch as part of the game day experience, maybe a rotation. This would be cool because, you know, TCU already hosts the... Uh, uh, not the military bowl. What's it called? Oh, my God, the Armed Forces Bowl. And uh, so maybe this would be kind of a cool regular season way to, to extend that partnership. Uh, with the Armed Forces Bowl by by having the service academies come to Fort Worth. Ultimate Frog, player who's been the biggest surprise in a good and bad way. Biggest surprise in a good way. Uh, I mean, it's hard to say Imani Bailey because that's a guy that I was really high on coming into the season, but I've still been impressed with the way that he's been able to handle a larger workload than I was expecting from him. I thought that he and, and Sanders were really going to kind of split 50-50, and that hasn't borne out that way. And it's because of how hard Amani Bailey is running. So that's been a really pleasant surprise. He's got uh, you know over 350 rushing yards already through three games, doing an incredible job in the backfield, uh, and is starting to earn some very high praise from his head coach and his quarterback, which are two guys to which are two good guys to be in good with if you're a running back. Um, I, I'll say what I said last week though. I need to see a running back step up and block better. That's that's the one thing I'm still looking at from the running back position. Uh, and then Ultimate also says, I'd like to see Baylor replace SMU on the schedule so we can beat them twice a year. Ha! Right now is a good time to do it because Baylor is down pretty, pretty bad. Perp Gang, 2341. Do you ever see the day where the portal becomes more important and used more than high school recruiting? Um, I don't know that it's... I, I We might already kind of be there depending on what school you're talking about. 
right? Um, Florida State made a huge emphasis on the portal this year and last year, and now look where they are. Clemson hasn't, and look where they are. You know, Alabama hasn't brought in all of the, the same level of transfers as other folks this year, and look what happened to them against Texas. Meanwhile, look at what Texas has done in the portal, right? And they have some elite freshmen on the roster too and some homegrown guys. Um, Banks Jr., the, the tackle for, for Texas, is one of the best offensive linemen in the country. Uh, he was a high school recruit for them. Um, but they also have a, a Georgia wide receiver transfer who's pretty dang good as well, right? They have a quarterback transfer that's pretty dang good as well. Um, and so I don't know that it's necessarily more important right now, but I think it's either the answer is either it's as important or it's becoming more important for teams that not only want to develop talent, um, because you know there is this. If you're not a, an elite blue blood program, there is this kind of four year cycle, right, where you're developing talent. Um, but the portal is an opportunity to cut that cycle in half, right? And and uh, so I think in that way, the portal is already as important as high school recruiting. And when you look at where certain schools, especially certain schools in Fort Worth that wear purple, are putting the majority of their NIL dollars. That'll tell you which one that they're they're. Um, that'll that'll reveal kind of their strategy, to you, right? Um, and Jeremy said it on the board a bunch of times. There, there, and other folks have as well. Uh, the NIL dollars that TCU is getting are going mostly towards the portal, and that's not true, or that's true for basketball and baseball as well as as football. Um, the, the dollars are mostly going through the portal, not through high school. And that's also an important contextual piece when we're talking about recruiting rankings from here on out. So keep all that in mind. Senior Frog. Will Sonny fry up some horse meat in the pan if we win? Gross. Turn it into glue. Swizzle, 714. Down for any G5 team that will give TCU an additional annual home game almost every year. Think almost every team in the Mountain West Conference or AAC would want a two-for-one at least, which would be fine in years where TCU has more conference home games plus other home out-of-conference games. Honestly, I think almost every Sunbelt Conference USA or MAC team would give TCU a one-off anytime they wanted one. I fully agree, and that's why I'm okay with this. Rice would be good. Maybe Tulsa or New Mexico. Destinations, Hawaii, Tulane, San Diego, FAU, Colorado State, UNLV. Give me football in Vegas. One of my favorite things ever was when I was... Okay, story time. Brief story because I'm already running long. When I was a senior in college at TCU, we played at UNLV on Halloween weekend. And when I tell you I've never bought a plane ticket so fast, did I make it to the football game? I'm going to plead the fifth on that. But holy cow, being in Las Vegas on Halloween weekend when your football team is playing there, that's a hell of an experience. Hell of an experience. Um, the most, the non-conference game I most want to see is Tulane. I want Tulane to come to Fort Worth. I want TCU to go to New Orleans. I think that would be great for TCU recruiting is to play a game in the southern half of that state. Uh, anyways, moving on. Senior Frog, everything is still in front of us. Can I get a game-by-game score prediction up to but not including Kansas State? Let me pull up TCU's schedule real quick, and I'm just going to... I'm just going to run these. I'm just going to run these as fast as I possibly can. Um, score prediction up to, but not including 
Kansas State. I see what you're trying to do here, by the way. SMU, I think TCU wins 45-42. to That's going to terrify a lot of you. West Virginia at home uh, in Fort Worth. Uh, TCU... 35, uh, yeah, TCU 35, West Virginia 20. Uh, at Iowa State, Iowa State's so bad, but their defense is good. Give me TCU 21, Iowa State 10. Um, and then BYU here, which is homecoming weekend on October 14th, by the way. Uh, give me TCU 35, BYU 31. There you go. TRF 51, is it time to reevaluate my hot take of Paul having 12 sacks this year? No. It is not time because Paul's got three sacks through three games. So if you want to be the on-pace guy, he's on pace for 12 sacks this year. He's been really good. You know, I think he's growing into that, that starting D-end role. Uh, he had two sacks against Houston. Uh, TCU caused a ton more disruption against Houston than they had in any of their prior two games. Um, that was good to see, and I think Paul's going to be a big part of that moving forward. Super Bar Frog. With the series getting sidelined and SMU making headlines and throwing money around, do you expect this to be the best atmosphere for a TCU-SMU game in recent memory? Yes. Yes. This one, I'm very much looking forward to the atmosphere on Saturday. Since Donati wants more home games, I think our scheduling every year should be a payday HBCU. I want more HBCUs in Fort Worth. A night game in week zero, so we get an extra bye week. I'm here for that as well. One and done home game versus quality group of five team like Tulane or Boise. Yes, bring them both on. Home and home with the top third Big Ten SEC team. I, I agree with that. You, that's that one's going to be the toughest one though, right? Like you're not going to be able to get Penn State for a home and home every single time or Auburn every single time. But you can get maybe Vandy. You can get like we've seen Purdue. Maybe I'd love to see Illinois and Indiana on the schedule. That'd be great. Give me Nebraska also, by the way, right? Give me Nebraska. Um. Army Frog Fan, are hot dogs and quesadillas sandwiches? If not, which is closest to a sandwich? Well, uh, a sandwich is two distinct pieces of bread with the contents in between. Thus, a quesadilla is a sandwich. I have long insisted, and no one listens to me. I'm like the, the, the street preacher. Hot dogs are tacos. Hot dogs are tacos. They're big bun in a taco shape. Meat in the thing, right? Hot dogs or tacos? It's it's obvious, folks. It's obvious. Don't let big media tell you that it's a sandwich. A hot dog is a taco. All, uh, life of a frog, in your opinion, is our consistent sloppiness on the offensive side of the ball more a result of the not yet gelling in a new scheme, constant tempo, lack of concentration? I kind of answered this one already, Loaf. All of the above. All of the above. Um, my name is Saucy. Is there a reason out there for why we haven't seen Jonathan Bax get any snaps through three games? Of all the freshmen that went through camp, I believe he was one of, if not the only true freshman protected by JC to break the two deep at his position. I'm bummed we haven't found a way to get him some snaps so far, but maybe there's something we don't know about there. Uh, I don't know that it's anything sinister. I think that he, and this is, I, I think there's a Cordell Russell question uh, later in the mailbag too, so I'll just kind of answer them both in the same go here. I think it's just about learning the playbook about understanding where you need to be. And especially from that linebacker spot, you've got to be able to read and react really quickly. And sometimes that just takes time. That's why I think we saw the defense get off to a slow start last year. And then they grew and grew and grew having D winners helped. I think that's why the same thing this year from a defensive perspective, especially with a new star linebacker in in uh, Namdi Obiezor, right? He had a much better week three than he did a week one. And I think that there's a development thing that, that, kind of goes along with that and when you're Jonathan Bax and you're a true freshman 
you know, there's there's going to be some growth that needs to happen there. Um, I don't think we'll see a ton of uh, snaps from him in week four, but hey, you know, week eight, nine, ten, and and if injuries happen, I, I think we'll see more of backs on the field. Um, but he's one of those kids, like he came in and he just looked ready to rock, and that's something that you can't teach. Jonathan Bax is going to be fine in the long term, just as is Cordell Russell. <clears throat> Would you rather have the KB offense so far or Dabo so far or Dabo Riley bubble screens at Clemson? I, all right, I, I, I kind of griped about short down play calling f- f- from Bryles so far this year, but I, I do think I would rather have Kendall's offense. Dabo and Riley are learning this year that that offense doesn't work well when you don't have Quentin Johnston on your team, when you don't have Darius Davis on your team, when you don't have Tay Barber on your team, when you don't have Kendry Miller on your team, right? When you don't have a downfield passer as accurate as Max Duggan on your team. Um, you got to have a lot of really, really talented guys to make that offense work at an elite level. They don't. The, Clemson hasn't had the, nearly the amount of explosive plays this year as TCU had last year. Um, and part of that is a talent thing, right? There's scheme that's also involved there. Uh, but I think the Kendall Bryles offense systematically and schematically is better suited for the average college athlete, whereas the Riley scheme is maybe more dependent on a quarterback that can make all the throws and wide receivers that can beat their man one-on-one consistently. Um, and so for that reason, I'm taking the Kendall offense. McFrog, horse meat hamburgers at concessions like at the old Will Rogers stock shows. Y'all are, I don't, I'm not eating horse, you guys. I'm not here for it. I'm not going to eat horse. Bexar Frog, I don't think I said that right. We should try to schedule Texas A&M, Texas, and Oklahoma whenever we can. Good luck. But only if they will do a home-and-home home double good luck. If we go lower tier to replace SMU, I'd like some of our old foes like Southern Miss, Boise State, New Mexico, San Diego State, and Tulane. Yes, send me to the beaches of San Diego and send me to New Orleans to gamble and watch Tulane play football. He also says, preseason practice reports were very optimistic about this team as one that could make national noise again. So far, that looks off the mark. Far off the mark. Ooh. Were you and Jeremy blowing smoke to increase fan interest? Were you just wrong? Or do you think we will see the see that team, still see that team later in the season? The third one, right? I uh, Tell me if I'm wrong, but did you expect Colorado to be as good as they were week one? Because I sure didn't. Um, did I overestimate the step back TCU, or did I underestimate the step back TCU would take because of some of the talent they lost? Yes. Do I think that this is a a, a team that can make significant noise this year? Yes. Both can be true. Uh, Frog of War 14, hypothetical, hypothetical for you given your stated love of hoodies. Shout out to my Big Sky hoodie from homefieldapparel.com. Frogs and 15 code gets you 15% off. Would you rather never wear a hoodie again or only be allowed to wear Baylor SMU hoodies? They can even be Hell's Half Acre if that sweetens the deal. Well, if Hell's Half Acre ever starts cranking out Baylor and SMU hoodies, we're going to have to reconsider our partnership with them. Uh, and yeah, I'm going quarter zips. Quarter zips and a hat will be my new mode of fashion if I have to only wear Baylor or SMU hoodies. Uh, Frogs War 15, 14 also asks, do you think Bailey's workload so far is sustainable? That's a, that's a good question. If not, who picks up the slack if he has to miss time? Do we trust Sanders to get 15-plus carries, or does that open the door for Battle, Ren, and Cook? How does the team... All right, so uh, I don't know if it's sustainable. Uh, I was heartened by the fact that Bailey almost didn't play on Saturday, and they still trusted him to get you know 23 touches or whatever it was. Uh, because he's got a little banged up ankle. Uh, I think that 
he thinks he can he can run that workload. Jeremy asked him about it afterwards. Did you expect to get you know close to twenty carries a game? And he's like, I don't I don't think about the numbers. I just want the ball in my hands. I want to make an impact. Um, uh, of the three that I think would have the best chance to make some noise, if we need someone to pick up the slack, I would say it's probably going to be Trent Battle. Keep that Trent Battle stock, folks. Keep it. Um, how does the team? Feel about going up against Hudson? Any bad blood there, or is it a non-story? I think it's mostly a non-story. I mean, they've already gone up against a former TC receiver once this year in Quincy Brown when Nichols came to town. I don't. I mean, you don't want, only want to talk about Jordan Hudson, right? Because Kyron Chambers is over on that team too now, cornerback that transferred over to SMU this year from TCU. So uh, I don't know that there's necessarily bad blood. I, I mean, it's already a rivalry game. They don't need any more reason to to get up. Um. I don't think they want Hudson to score, right? Uh, I think there are some corners that maybe have have specific goals in mind for Jordan Hudson this this week, but I don't think collectively there's anything anything there. Do you see or hear of any leaders stepping up in the locker room? Sonny mentioned some issues there after the first two weeks, and I wonder if we're seeing any progress there. I, the one the name that I keep hearing more and more is Andrew Coker on the offensive side of the ball specifically. Um, and he talked about this a little bit last week too, that he's kind of taking it upon himself to, to step more into a leadership role. Um, we'll see how that bears out. I think he's a good guy to do it. Uh, Willis Patrick's another guy who I think has the opportunity to maybe step into a, a leadership role. Brandon Coleman as well has been doing that. Um, there are some, there's some really veteran intelligent guys along that offensive line who I think are fully capable of, of being leaders. Uh, Chandler has been complimented by players more and more about how much he's growing into a leadership role. And so that's really good to hear as well. Um, defensively, it's the same same kind of guys, right? It's Mark Perry, it's Josh Newton, it's uh, Johnny Hodges. Those are the three kind of guys on, on defense that I think are kind of banging the drum the most. Um, let's see. As we keep on keeping on here, how many five-star reviews and sponsorships will it take for Melissa to troll the shit out of her SMU preview tonight in order to it have them hang up i answered this in the thread um but i texted her a screenshot of that question and she said 50 um agtht frogs are down by five and there is a minute 30 left on the clock frogs have the ball inside their own five yard line who are you marching onto the field at the wide receiver spots in a final attempt to get into the end zone to win the game well you got to have savion out wide i want dalen Wright out wide i want this is not a wide receiver spot but i'm slotting out um uh, Jared Wiley, and then in that other slot. See, here's the thing, right? Do you go five wide and get Warren Thompson on the field? Or do you have Imani Bailey coming out of the backfield? I think I have Imani Bailey coming out of the backfield, and I have J.P. Richardson in that slot spot. So that gives you four wide plus Imani. He can stay in and block if things get hairy, and then you got Chandler with his legs. I feel pretty confident in that. Just don't throw it behind the line of scrimmage. Let's see. Let's see. How many more do we got here? Can we get some kind of word on how the investigation into the Jerry Kill attack by SMU is going? Millions of taxpayer dollars are being spent on this thing, and yet we are told nothing. Uh, there's video of what actually happened. And uh, But I know I'm being told. That the, oh, hang on. Being told right now. Someone's talking in my ear. Uh, the Texas Rangers are still working on their final report. The baseball team, not the other Texas Rangers. Frog Frog, please weigh in with your best guess, yes, no prediction on one. TCU wins nine or more regular seasons game season games. Yes or no? 
If you had said eight, I would have said yes. Hmm. Nine. Yes. Oof. No. Yes. I'm staying. Yes. I'm staying positive. Hurry your losses, knowing what you know now. Uh, like I said before the year, when I said ten and two, I think Kansas State and Texas are probably the two losses this year. Um, Haas earns a top twelve, twenty four quarter, twenty four seven quarterback ranking. He's currently sixteen. Yes. More realignment announcements happened before. Was that six thirty twenty four? Yes. If so, who, where, when, how? ACC places. ACC going places. Um, and not in a good way for the ACC. Number four, the Rangers make the playoffs. Yes! Texas Rangers. They should have been in first place yesterday, but Houston had a walk-off. Um, I noticed Tico Brown, this is TCU Ball 3, uh, playing against Houston and making an impact, but he is way down on the depth chart. What's the deal? They're still figuring it out, man. They're still figuring out that defensive line rotation, what's going to go on there, how they're going to get some guys into the game. You know, all that good stuff, right? Uh, there, You know, we didn't see a lot of, of Rick DeBreu either, but uh, that's okay. No questions this week from Ludacliff. Man, all right. But love this segment. Really like the feel of your mailbag, Jamie. I'm, I'm going to go with the original interpretation of mailbag and not the proposed new interpretation of mailbag from Max on that one. Um, oh, you do have a question. Which SMU helmet do you prefer? It's a pony. It's got money signs down the middle on the blue stripe. And then on the pony, it says 100 million in seven days. The other one is just Scrooge. Is that Scrooge jumping in and out? Oh, it's, I can't remember the duck's name. He's jumping in and out of his coins. Give me the coin duck. Give me coin duck. That's what we're going to go with. Coin duck for the win. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Frogs Insider. Thank you for hanging out. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. Like the video if you're watching this on youtube subscribe to the youtube channel as well over at frogs insider we've got press conference videos we've got breakdown videos midweek i'm putting a ton of content on that page so is melissa we're gonna have that thing up and rolling full full steam here in just a second don't get left behind on the youtube page check out home field apparel check out hell's half acre i think that's everything for now for melissa uh this has been the frogs insider podcast we'll talk to you next time go frogs